There's been a grim end to the search for the vessel that disappeared during an expedition to the wreck of the Titanic. The U.S. Coast Guard says it appears there was a catastrophic implosion as the submersible made its descent. There's no sign of the five people who had been on board. Today is Thursday, June 22nd, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Monger spoke in Boston after rescue crews found a field of debris on the seafloor. The debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. Also, the governor of Texas sent 42 migrants to Los Angeles last week in what L.A. Mayor Karen Bass calls a political stunt. There was no attempt to contact us. The migrants were put on a bus, basically without food or water. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. Coast Guard confirms all five people aboard the submersible that went missing in the North Atlantic Ocean are gone. NPR's Tovia Smith reports officials disclosed a short time ago what rescuers uncovered as they were searching an area where the Titan was visiting the wreck of the Titanic over the weekend. All indications are that the vessel suffered a catastrophic implosion on its way down to the Titanic site, instantly killing all aboard. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger offered his heartfelt condolences to the families and loved ones. I know that there's a lot of questions about why, how, when uh, this happened, and those questions uh, about regulations that apply, uh, that's going to be, I'm sure, a focus of future uh, review. Oceangate, the company that owns the vessel that they call Experimental, noted in a statement that the passengers, including the company's CEO, were true explorers and that they're grieving deeply for their loss. Tovia Smith, NPR News. A powerful storm's moving through the Caribbean, prompting a hurricane watch for St. Lucia. That's because Tropical Storm Brett is moving through that region. And PR's Greg Allen reports Brett is, again, a powerful storm with winds near hurricane strength. Brett is the second named storm in an unusually active early hurricane season. It doesn't threaten the U.S., but is bearing down on islands in the Lesser Antilles, including Dominica, Martinique, and Barbados. Residents of the islands are being warned to prepare for damaging winds, torrential rainfall, flooding, and potential landslides. Meteorologists say Brett will likely weaken after passing over the islands as it encounters strong upper-level winds. The National Hurricane Center is also tracking a tropical depression in the Atlantic that's soon expected to become the season's third named storm. Unusually warm ocean temperatures in the Atlantic are fueling the development of these early tropical systems. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. President Biden is hosting India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi for a state visit at the White House today. Both leaders have been discussing shared interests and security concerns as well, especially over China's expanding influence. Through an interpreter, Modi stated his commitment to India's democracy. Friends, America. The societies and institutions of both India and the U.S. are based on democratic values. The constitutions of both countries begin with the following three words, we, the people. However, Modi's government also faces U.S. criticism over human rights abuses and discrimination against Muslims in the predominantly Hindu country. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average down four points to 33,946. The S&P's up 16 points and the Nasdaq had risen 128 points. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We have more now on the efforts to recover the submersible and the remains of the five men who died in a catastrophic implosion aboard the vessel that was diving to the wreck of the Titanic. Just in the last hour in Boston, Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger said it's not clear if any bodies can be recovered from the area. This is an incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor, uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. Mauger says the debris found during the search for the vessel is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. The entire B branch of the MBTA's Green Line will be shut down for nearly two weeks in the second half of July. Buses will replace trains between the Kenmore and Boston College stops. The T says the shutdown is needed so workers can replace the track at Packard's Corner between Harvard Avenue and Alston Street. That work begins July 17th. MBTA says it's retrained 2,000 workers to address safety concerns after recent near misses between workers and trains. The training was requested by federal regulators. WBUR's Zeninjor Enomeka reports the MBTA's general manager today told the agency's board about the training that it was completed in just over a month. MBTA workers and contractors were included in the training, according to the T. General Manager Phil Eng says it focused on key areas that led to the recent near misses, such as right-of-way protocols. And to do this, we implemented an aggressive, around-the-clock, five-day-a-week, four-hour retraining program approved by FTA, half in the classroom and half on the tracks. Eng says the MBTA will continue to retrain all employees and the agency is also working to develop more training programs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zeninjor and Wameka. Got to hand it to the Minnesota Twins. They beat the Red Sox 6-0 thanks to Twins pitcher Joe Ryan, who completed the Twins' first nine-inning complete game and first shutout since 2018. 69 degrees now, cloudy tonight, chance of showers tomorrow, clouds, maybe more showers, especially in the afternoon. Tomorrow's highs in the mid-70s. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown, Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It has been nearly a year since the Supreme Court handed down a major abortion ruling. And in a moment, we will look at how that ruling is shaping politics now and going forward in the 2024 elections. But we begin today at the White House, where President Biden welcomed India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi to Washington with great fanfare. An estimated crowd of 7,000 people gathered on the South Lawn to join in that welcome. The sheer size of that crowd is proof of the partnership between India and the United States. But this partnership comes with questions about Biden's foreign policy vision. NPR White House correspondent Asma Hala joins us now. Hey there. Hi there. Good to be with you. So Asma, what is this visit about? Well, fundamentally, it's about China. This White House is deeply concerned about China's aggression and influence in the Indo-Pacific. And uh, India is also very nervous about its neighbor. Akriti Vasudeva Kalyanakar is with the Stimson Center. That's a think tank that focuses on security issues. 
the China factor is really an accelerant in the relationship. It has really, you know, moved forward cooperation in many ways, particularly in the defense and security side. But I don't think the U.S. and your relationship is just about China. And that's what both leaders today suggested. They spoke about collaborating on a long list, including semiconductors and space. But experts say India's geography is a big part of this friendship, because if India did not border China, would the U.S. really be willing to overlook some of these differences? And Asma, what are those differences? Uh, Well, one is Russia. India has not been willing to outright condemn Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, and it continues to buy a lot of oil from Russia, which has helped financially fuel the war. Biden said today they did talk about ways to mitigate the humanitarian tragedy of the war, and Modi reiterated that his country has put an emphasis on finding a resolution to the conflict, but there were no indications that he's changing any of his positions. Uh, Another big issue is human rights. Biden, you know, campaigned on a pledge to center human rights in his foreign policy. Modi's government has been widely criticized for stifling dissent, for discriminating against religious minorities, and for cracking down on a free press. And today, did Biden press Modi on human rights? Well, Biden said he had a good discussion with Modi about democratic values, and he suggested that these values are what ought to tie India and the U.S. together. I look forward to discussing how we can strengthen our partnership and build a future together worthy of both our peoples. One grounded on democracy, human rights, freedom, and rule of law. And, and you know, Juana, I will say there was a press conference today, and I think that in itself is noteworthy because Modi doesn't really do press conferences in India. Uh, He was asked today by an American journalist what steps he's willing to take to improve the rights of minorities and uphold free speech. And he denied that, frankly, there is a problem. Uh, Here he is speaking through an interpreter. We have always proved that democracy can deliver. And when I say deliver, this is regardless of caste, creed, religion, gender. There's absolutely no space for discrimination. Okay, and Asma, before we wrap, I want to go back to China for a second. Is the U.S. willing to look past some of these issues because it's playing a long game with India? Well, some experts would say yes. Uh, India is the most populous country in the world, and Biden himself has described the relationship as being the defining partnership of this century. He also said today that fundamentally both India and the U.S. have democracy in their DNA, and it's a really different relationship that the U.S. has with India than with China, a country whose leader Biden described this week as being a dictator. NPR's Asma Khalid, thank you. My pleasure. The Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization has meant that access to abortion care is no longer guaranteed for millions of Americans. It was a political earthquake when it happened nearly a year ago. In many ways, the ground is still shaking. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith looks at what it may mean for the 2024 presidential race. For decades, the politics around abortion were pretty well set. Roe versus Wade meant abortion was legal nationwide. Republicans wanted Roe overturned, and that motivated their voters. Democrats, on the other hand, simply weren't as energized by it. And Democratic politicians often shied away from talking about abortion. Then came the Dobbs decision. Gretchen Whitmer is the Democratic governor of Michigan. The threat of women losing a right we've come to expect and rely on and um, after 50 years of having it, mobilized people, it enraged people, it coalesced people. Whitmer was running for re-election in 2022. She won her race easily. A referendum also on the Michigan ballot, establishing a state constitutional right to abortion and contraception, won by even more. But I can tell you in this 
very swing state, purple state of Michigan, it has been something that has um, really changed the whole in landscape here, flipping both chambers of our legislature for the first time in 40 years and returning me to office and, and a host of other people who are fighting for these rights. Senator Gary Peters, also from Michigan, led nationwide efforts to get Democrats elected and re-elected to the U.S. Senate in 2022. He says the Dobbs effect was clear. The polls closed at 8 o'clock uh, that night. If you were in line, you could still vote. And the last voter to vote at the University of Michigan was a little after two o'clock in the morning. They stood in line for hours. They were not going to let Republicans take away a fundamental right that their mothers had. Ultimately, Democrats did better than expected in the midterm elections. Their voters and independents showed up because abortion was on the ballot, quite literally in states like Michigan, but figuratively all over the country. Democratic candidates talked about abortion rights and painted Republicans as extreme. In an interview with Fox News Sunday, Republican Party Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel says her party needs to do things differently in 2024. And abortion was a big issue in key states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. And so the guidance we're going to give to our candidates is you have to address this head on. The Democrats spent $360 million on this, and many of our candidates across the board refused to talk about it, thinking, oh, we can just talk about the economy and ignore this big issue, and, and they can't. A year out from the Dobbs decision, reproductive rights remain an active political issue. Democratic pollster Celinda Lake says public support for abortion increased right after the decision and has been enduring. The Democratic incumbent in the race for mayor in Lincoln, Nebraska, who Lake consulted for, even made it a central issue in her campaign last month. This issue became a core values issue. It's like, I'm not going to vote for someone who has these views. I don't care what office you're talking about. If you're talking about president to dog catcher, I'm not going to vote for someone with these values. Nationwide, the Dobbs decision remains unpopular. An NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out this week found 57% of those surveyed were opposed, led by Democrats, independents, and women. But Republican pollster Patrick Ruffini says he's just not convinced that come November 2024, this will be the biggest driver of voter enthusiasm. As this becomes more of a settled issue, you know, nearly universal access in blue states, and you're going to have a lot of restrictions in red states, as we settle back into, you know, what feels like a status quo, you know, it's going to be, I think, tougher to move people into message on the issue. Democrats are betting they can keep this issue front of mind. And it is certainly going to be a matter of debate in the competitive Republican presidential primary. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Washington. And now we're going to remember the life of a man who has been called autism's first child. In 1943, Donald Triplett was the first ever person to be formally diagnosed with autism. He died last week at the age of 89. Triplett's diagnosis was the beginning of decades of research into the condition, but his story was largely forgotten until journalists Karen Zucker and John Donvan were researching the history of autism. The two found him living in his hometown, Forest, Mississippi. You know, right away we saw that there was a, a different thing happening there, because when we asked permission to be introduced to him, um, they warned us not to mess with him in any way. 
but you know we asked people to trust us and they they said okay we'll trust you and so they began talking to us about donald zucker and donvin documented triplet's life in a book and documentary titled in a different key and what they found was the story of an extraordinary man ob triplet says his uncle was a joy to be around don was different and you know i think we have a connotation of different as being you know negative or bad or whatever which is, which is really not true. It's not true. Donald Triplett was beloved by his community, and he loved them back in his own special way, like the rhyming nicknames he gave to people. Hey, Shelby Wildby. Hey, Nat the Cat. Hey, R.C. Hi, hey, Tricky Nick. Hey, Jan with the plan. Hey, Don, darling. He didn't just give nicknames. Triplett also had an affinity for numbers, and he liked to assign them to people, as some of his neighbors recalled. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he gave me a number. 569. 154. 1453. He was so lucky. And, you know, this is not what happened in the 30s and 40s to people who were different. They were shunned or they were put away for life, never to be seen again. And Donald lived the richest of rich lives. In his final days, Zucker and Donvin paid Donald Triplett a visit and reminded him how much of an impact he had during his life. Karen and I said to him, you know, Donald, we just want you to know how much your story has impacted people out in the world and how much hope you've given them. And Donald, a man of few words, just said, oh, yes, thank you very much. But about 30 seconds later, zing, Karen gets hit in the face with a rubber band. So we kind of think, in a way, that was his his way of saying, "It's I'm, I'm happy to have helped. Donald Triplett was the first person to be diagnosed with autism. He died last week after a long fight with cancer. He was 89 years old. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes at the 2023 NBA draft tonight, all eyes are on a 19-year-old from France. We'll find out what makes him so special. That again in about 20 minutes. The Dow today closed right about where it began. S&P and NASDAQ rose to snap a three-day losing streak. S&P gained nearly four-tenths of a percent, and the NASDAQ picked up nearly a full percent. Union workers at Encore have set a strike deadline for the end of the month. 1,400 housekeepers, cooks, and other staff are demanding increased wages and benefits similar to those of other unionized hotel employees in the area. Carlos Armayo is president of Boston's largest hospitality union, Unite Here Local 26. We've sat at the bargaining table. We're willing to keep sitting at the bargaining table. But I think the vote speaks for itself that our members and the members of Teamsters Local 25 are prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice and walk out on strike if we're not able to get the contract everyone deserves. The American Gaming Association reports Encore is the third highest grossing commercial casino outside Nevada. 
Encore says it's working to provide employees with competitive wages and benefits. The Food and Drug Administration today has given accelerated approval to the first-of-its-kind gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. The therapy was developed by Cambridge-based biotech Sarepta Therapeutics. Duchenne is the most common form of muscular dystrophy. It progressively destroys muscle, primarily affects young boys. The FDA is restricting access to the medication pending more studies. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Tap and listen to WBR anywhere the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you might have missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. 69 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live online or in-person summer programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com NPR. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. From the Supreme Court today, a big decision on tribal water rights along the Colorado River. The court ruled against the Navajo Nation in a case that centered on the tribe's desire to secure more water for its people. Many tribal members live without clean water access at home. Reporter Luke Runyon with member station KUNC is here to explain. Hey, Luke. Hi there. Lay out for me what exactly this case was about. This case was really about the relationship between the federal government and the Navajo Nation and about an 1868 treaty which established the tribe's reservation. It's an incredibly arid expanse of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. The Supreme Court ruled more than a century ago that when reservations were established, they included enough water for people to actually live on them. And in this case, the Navajo were asking the federal government for an assessment of specifically how much water that is. Uh, The government's lawyers countered that the treaty didn't require that. And it sounds like the justices agreed with with that argument? Yeah, a five to four majority agreed with the government's argument. Uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote the opinion, and he was joined by most of the court's conservative wing. And he said the treaty didn't make any promises about assisting the tribe in any way. Uh, But in his dissent, Justice Neil Gorsuch said the other justices were missing the point and misunderstanding the tribe's desires, that their asks were a lot more modest than the court was making them out to be. Well, and I will say, asking the federal government to assess how much water the Navajo Nation needs, that doesn't sound like a huge or a controversial ask. On its surface, it's not. uh, But what some say the Navajo were really asking for in that assessment is more specificity on how much water they actually have a right to. Uh, The treaty just gives the Navajo a vague right to enough water to conduct agriculture and for other uses, but how much is how much is enough has never really been specified and an assessment could give that specificity. And why is that important? 
Well, a right to a specific quantified amount of water would likely mean it would come from the nearby Colorado River. That river is already overpromised. There's not enough water to meet demand. And so if the Navajo were to get a legal right to a precise amount, it would probably have to come from someone else. Okay. So for people who watch this closely, what are you hearing? Well, going into this decision, there was some optimism that they'd side with the Navajo Nation because just last week, the court decided to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was a big win for tribes. Uh, But the court in this case went with the more narrow interpretation of what the tribal federal relationship looks like when it comes to water. I talked with Heather Tanana, a University of Utah law professor and citizen of the Navajo Nation, and she says this decision keeps the burden on tribes to chart their own futures without much help the status quo is going to continue. Being disappointed by the federal government is nothing new in Indian country. And does this ruling have implications for other tribes beyond the Colorado Colorado River Basin? It's hard to say. Right now, the states that share the river are negotiating how to do that into our climate-changed future. And they've been talking a lot about how tribes must be included in those negotiations. They've been almost completely left out up until now. And today's ruling, as Heather Tanana said, basically maintains the status quo. There's no new legal lever for tribes to ask for assistance in getting access to Colorado River water. Luke Runyon is host of the podcast Thirst Gap about the Colorado River. He is at member station KUNC in Colorado. Thanks, Luke. Thank you. The National Transportation Safety Board is holding two days of hearings in East Palestine, Ohio, to surface critical information about how a freight train derailed in February. That led to fires and a chemical plume that could be seen for miles. Cleanup continues, and some residents are still displaced. Among those testifying are employees of Norfolk Southern, the company which operated the derailed train, along with local emergency responders, unions, and transportation experts. The allegations Fronts Julie Grant has been covering the hearing and joins us now. Hi, Julie. Hi there. So, Julie, tell us what has the focus been of today's hearing? Well, the first day of hearings is focusing on emergency response efforts, including the way that responders communicated about what was going on right after it happened, and a decision to vent and burn five cars filled with the chemical vinyl chloride. That's what led to the plume that left many residents worried for the environment and their health. There were questions about why first responders didn't have quick and easy information about the contents of the derailed train cars, which they needed to react properly. NTSB Chair Jennifer Hamidi asked Norfolk Southern's Scott Deutsch why it took so long for the East Palestine Fire Department to get that information. How is it that Norfolk Southern could provide the contractors responsible for cleanup with the information within 12 minutes of the derailment and took an hour to several hours before providing it to emergency responders? So Deutsch said he could not explain the time frame, but getting this information to first responders matters. If they'd known what chemicals were burning in those train cars, they would have known not to stand nearby trying to douse it. Emergency responders also brought up that they needed more training and funding if they're going to be prepared to respond to events like this. Okay, and this morning, before the hearing, NTSB released thousands of pages of documents. From what you've had a chance to read through so far, what stood out to you? 
Well, the documents included the transcript of an interview with East Palestine Fire Chief Keith Drabik. He's the only professional staff member at the otherwise volunteer local fire department, and he was put in charge of giving the go-ahead to vent and burn vinyl chloride when the temperature started rising in one of the tank cars. There were concerns about an unplanned explosion if that didn't happen. He said he was told by one of the members of Norfolk Southern's emergency response team that he had just 13 minutes to decide. Drabik says he got blindsided and felt overwhelmed, but that he ultimately approved it. He also says he didn't have training from Norfolk Southern in hazardous material emergency response. And so this raises questions about the system that's in place for making decisions in cases like this. Okay, so we've got day one of the hearing and there are two days. What do we expect tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow they'll be looking at what actually caused the train to derail. So that means wheel bearings, why they fail, how often that happens and how to prevent it. And also industry standards for detector systems along the railways. NTSB will also take a closer look at tank car standards and when it's appropriate to vent and burn chemicals from them. So, Julie, ultimately, what is expected to come out of these hearings? Yeah, well, NTSB is purely investigative, and what they do is make safety recommendations. So they're doing this assessment to figure out what sorts of new recommendations they might have to make. That could include things like training for first responders, emergency communication protocols, or new kinds of labeling for tank cars carrying hazardous materials. But ultimately, it will be up to the Department of Transportation to create new rules or Congress to mandate these recommendations. Julie Grant of the Allegheny Front, thanks so much. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered in Brazil, this was day one in the trial of the former far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro. He's accused of abusing power and spreading false information. Such a beautiful early summer day today. We should have clouds move in, though, for the night tonight. Maybe a shower. Temperatures in the low 60s. Then for tomorrow, more clouds. Chance of more showers, too. Highs around 75 degrees. Cloudy chance of showers, maybe thunderstorms on Saturday, right about 80 degrees. Mostly cloudy for Sunday. Highs about 81 degrees. If you're making plans for tomorrow night, R&B and neo-soul singer-songwriter Miranda Ray headlines our next Sound On Music Festival. It's Friday at City Space at WBUR. You can get details and tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. Should companies require remote workers to go back to the office? Consultant Callie Williams-Yost says that's the wrong question. It's over. Flexibility is how you can decide how you're going to optimize it. Or you can keep fighting it and miss the moment. How and where you work best and what that means for organizational culture. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Coast Guard officials say they found debris from a missing submersible near the wreck of the Titanic. That debris is consistent 
with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. As Walter Worthman reports, all five of its passengers are believed to have died. Coast Guard officials say a remote-operated vehicle found pieces of the submersible's nose and tail on the seafloor just off the bow of the Titanic. Rear Admiral John Mogger says the spread of the wreckage indicates that the submersible's pressure chamber failed. This is an incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor, uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. Officials say they immediately notified the families of the vessel's passengers. In a statement, the submersible company OceanGate says the pilot and four crew members were true explorers who shared a distinct spirit of adventure. For NPR News, I'm Walter Wuthman in Boston. As the White House prepares a lavish state dinner tonight for India's prime minister, President Biden says relations with the country and its leader have never been stronger. During a news conference this afternoon, Prime Minister Narendra Narendra Modi said the two leaders agreed on a series of new business deals. He's speaking through an interpreter here. Discussions today and the important decisions we have taken have added a new chapter to our comprehensive and a global strategic partnership. They have given it a new direction and a new energy. The Biden administration views India as a possible counterbalance to China in the Indo-Pacific region. And while the U.S. and India have strengthened diplomatic, defense, and economic ties, India has avoided criticizing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA is reporting progress in lifting speed restrictions on all subway lines. Today, the T said it's lifted nearly 100 slowdowns in its month-long effort to make track improvements. Most of those restrictions on the red line have been uh, lifted. Drought conditions in Massachusetts are improving. According to today's Drought Monitor report, about 20 percent of the state is considered abnormally dry. That's half what it was last week. The driest parts of the state are Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, parts of Cape Cod, and out west in Berkshire County. The Suffolk County District Attorney's Office is taking a closer look at 38 cases involving claims of innocence, wrongful conviction, and unjust sentencing. The office's Integrity Review Bureau says since it began work four years ago, it has provided legal relief to 18 people who had been convicted of crimes. And the Maine legislature has approved a bill expanding the sovereignty of Native American tribes in the state. The legislation would put the Wabanaki tribe on the same footing with other federally recognized tribes in the country. Under a 1980 law, tribes in Maine are bound by state law and treated much like cities and towns. Maine's governor opposes the bill, saying it could lead to lawsuits. Sports and the forecast are coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University. With a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. The Minnesota Twins blanked the Sox this afternoon six to nothing. And it looks as if the Boston Celtics are parting ways with guard Marcus Smart ahead of tonight's NBA draft. According to multiple reports, the 29-year-old will be sent to the Memphis Grizzlies. It's part of a three-team trade that will ultimately land Boston's seven-foot, three-inch center, Chris Tapps Porzingis from the Washington Wizards. Gary Washburn covers the NBA for the Boston Globe. He says Porzingis is a versatile scorer who will make the Celtics better. 
He's a good mid-range shooter, good three-point shooter, able to dribble. He has a lot of skills. He's kind of a seven-foot-three point guard. You know, he's, he just does a lot of good things. Porzingis also has a long history of injuries. Marcus Smart is the longest-tenured Celtics player. In the forecast, pretty beautiful out there right now, but clouds move in tonight. Chance of showers down around 60 for tomorrow. Overcast again, maybe damp again with showers, particularly in the afternoon. Highs about 75 degrees. Should rise to about 80 on Saturday. Showers, clouds as well, and then more clouds for Sunday with highs about 81. 69 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. On a cloudy Wednesday afternoon last week, a bus of 42 people pulled into downtown L.A.'s Union Station. All of those on board were migrants, including young children from countries far and wide like Venezuela, Guatemala, China... These migrants had spent 23 hours on a journey from South Texas to Los Angeles. This is all part of a series of moves by Texas Governor Greg Abbott and other GOP leaders to send migrants to cities run by Democrats. Abbott has said that Texas is, quote, overwhelmed and overrun by thousands of people crossing from Mexico into Texas. Well, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass has condemned the move, and she is here with us now to speak more about this. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. Always happy to be on. Well, what is the latest you've heard about how these people who were on that bus last week, how are they doing right now? Well, I believe they're doing okay. I don't have a a recent report, but here's the good news. When they arrived, because our team and our emergency management department was put on notice in January that at any point the governors of Florida and Texas might send groups of migrants, (laughs) the idea that 60,000 people have been sent to New York, we were very concerned. So we were prepared, even though there was no attempt to contact us, The migrants were put on a bus basically without food or water, but our community organizations and our city officials and our faith community rallied and made sure that each of the individuals that arrived were connected with family members or friends in the geographic area. So we were lucky, uh, but it was pure luck because there was no attempt to coordinate, which meant, in my opinion, it was a political stunt that was despicable and reminiscent of the Trump administration. And I'm very concerned that this behavior uh, might continue from these two governors. Well, L.A. has for some time now been at least symbolically considered a sanctuary city. But it wasn't until a couple weeks ago that the city council here approved a motion to officially make Los Angeles a sanctuary city for immigrants. Explain for everyone listening, practically speaking, what does that ordinance do? 
And you know what? That was a surprise to me because from my point of view, L.A. had been a sanctuary city from years ago. I did not realize it hadn't been codified into law. The primary reason for that is to protect immigrants because we don't want the Los Angeles Police Department essentially doing the work of ICE, of immigration. Undocumented immigrants are vulnerable. And if they feel like they can't report a crime, they can't call public officials, or they might be deported, then that compromises the safety of all Angelinos. Well, the way I understand it, and I'm just reading from a news release here, Mm -hmm. this city ordinance ensures that no city resources, property, or personnel are to be used for federal immigration enforcement. So does this mean then that being a sanctuary city essentially translates into Los Angeles is prepared to spend city resources, property, and personnel to help migrants find shelter and services? Is that something that you would stand by as the mayor of the city? Uh, Well, of course, this is a city of immigrants. We have people here from over a hundred countries. And uh, and obviously when we wanna make sure that anybody in our city is protected. We are also a city that has 40,000 unhoused people. And so we are in the middle of a crisis where we are not able to provide housing for Angelenos. But that should never be an excuse for there to be an anti-immigrant sentiment. And what the governors are doing in these other cities is just a reflection of their xenophobia, of their anti-immigrant ideology, and it's really political. This is in preparation for the 2024 election. The Republicans plan to run on an anti-immigrant platform, just like they have been doing pretty consistently over the last few years. But is this city, is Los Angeles in a position to absorb more busloads of migrants? Should Governor Abbott or any other Republican leader send more busloads this way? Well, that's why I said if what happened to New York happened in Los Angeles, it would send a city that is already in a crisis and it would exacerbate that crisis. Well, Greg Abbott and other Republican leaders say that they're also just trying to send a message to the Biden administration. They say the federal government should be doing more to secure the border. Do you agree with that point, that the federal government should do more? The last I checked, uh, President Biden resides in the White House in Washington, D.C., not in Los Angeles. I absolutely believe that Congress needs to pass comprehensive immigration reform. I supported it and worked on it every year I was in Congress. And what about the Biden administration? Is there any specific assistance you would like to see from the president as you navigate helping migrants like the ones who just arrived last week? Well, I will tell you that uh, I've been very uh, excited to work with the Biden administration. Uh, We just finished signing a memorandum of understanding to tackle the problem of homelessness in Los Angeles. And so far, the Biden administration has been very supportive. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Basketball fans know tonight is the night. One super stoked NBA team will get to draft Victor Wembanyama. The San Antonio Spurs have the coveted first draft pick and, of course, are expected to choose the 7'4", 19-year-old Frenchman. To find out what makes this young athlete so special and so coveted, our colleague Elsa Chang spoke with Zach Cram, who is a staff writer for The Ringer, and asked what makes him so good. 
So most good NBA players fit into, broadly speaking, one or two camps. There are shorter guards who are really good at dribbling, really good at shooting, but not as good near the basket, not as good on defense. Or there are the big guys who are dominant near the basket, but they can't shoot as well, they can't dribble, they're not as fast. Wembenyama combines the best of both worlds. Most every other player has weaknesses or trade-offs they have to make because of their skills and size. Wembenyama has everything. The teams with the worst season records have the best chance at getting their first draft pick. And Wembenyama is so good that there were rumors of teams throwing their entire season to better their odds. Cram says for basketball, that's not that crazy. More than any other sport in basketball, just one superstar can change the direction of a franchise. There are only five players on the court at a time, and the best player can get the ball as much as he wants. So would a team sacrifice one bad season for potentially 10, 15, 20 wonderful years with Wimbenyama? I think that's a fair trade-off. Wimbenyama is coming from the French League, where he led in blocks, in points, and in rebounds. But the French League is not the NBA, so is he ready to compete here? Well, he's been preparing for this for a long time, says Cram, and has a whole crew of people making sure he'll be ready trainers and nutrition experts and fitness experts to really make his body ready down to like the narrowest body parts. He has big toe exercises that he's been doing just to make sure that his feet are strong enough to sustain an NBA workload. Big toe exercises. Now that is commitment. Indeed. That was Zach Graham talking about Victor Wimbanyama, the presumed number one draft pick in tonight's NBA draft. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Today in Brazil, the political trial against the former president got underway. Prosecutors say ex-leaders Jair Bolsonaro abused his powers when he spread lies about fraud in Brazil's electoral system. They are recommending that he be barred from politics for the near future. That could be quite a blow for Bolsonaro, who is still a polarizing figure in the country and the leader of his far-right movement. For more on today's trial, we go to Rio de Janeiro and NPR's Carrie Con. Hi, Carrie. Hi. So, Carrie, tell us what happened in court today. Well, the first thing to understand that this is not a criminal court. In Brazil, there's this whole separate court system for electoral proceedings, which, as you know, we don't have such a system in the U.S. So the court came to order early this morning. Bom dia a todos. Declaro aberta a sessão desta quinta-feira. And the head of the court opened the trial, and we heard a, te- a lot of testimony about the charges. So prosecutors say that Bolsonaro, when he was president last year, gave a speech to this group of ambassadors, and in it he disparaged and made unproven and false statements about the country's electronic voting system. By doing that, they say he abused his power, and they've also said that his actions were critical in setting the stage for the attacks by his supporters on January 8th, that's when a mob ransacked several key government buildings in the capital, and they say he should be banned from from running for office for eight years. And Carrie, was Bolsonaro in the courtroom today as this trial went on? No, he wasn't. He's not required to be there. Instead, he went to what felt like a campaign stop in the South. So he put out this tweet set to very loud music. It's a it's a video of him just mobbed, surrounded by supporters, all vying for selfies with him. Later in the day, he blasted the court proceedings. And what did his defense lawyers have to say? 
His lawyer's main point is that while the then president might not have, um, he might not have articulated his feelings artfully about what he has long believed are problems with Brazil's electronic voting system, he has a right, freedom of expression to say what he thinks. And he wasn't holding a political event when he talked to those ambassadors. It was an official state event. Foi realizado na presença, não na presença de eleitores. Não na presença de candidatos. He says there weren't any voters even in the room. There were no candidates, no election officials. It was clearly a state act. The prosecutor came back later and said, sure, the president has the right to express his opinion, but he has no right to make blatantly false statements and spread lies. The court recessed today and will be back on Tuesday. I mean, as I'm listening to this, this sounds quite familiar to those of yeah. us in the United States who have been watching former President Trump's legal issues unfold. Talk to us. Are there any similarities? Well, look, it's very interesting to watch these two political dramas play out. Uh, Bolsonaro considered Trump his political ally, and many say he took straight from the Trump playbook. He claimed fraud in last year's election, and when he lost his re-election bid, he refused to concede. The big difference here is that the penalties in Brazil are quite different and very swift, especially from this electoral court. Unlike Trump, he's facing this ban and looks very likely he'll be barred from running for president again in 2026. Also like Trump, he's facing many different charges, including criminal ones that could even land him in prison. But it's clear Bolsonaro and his far-right party are not going away. It made big gains in both houses of Congress last year. And like Trump, he still remains very popular here. NPR's Carrie Kahn in Rio de Janeiro. Thank you, Carrie. You're welcome. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Pretty beautiful still out there right now. Should be cloudy overnight tonight, though. Could have a shower. Temperatures about 60. Then for tomorrow, overcast once again. Maybe a shower in the afternoon. Warming to about 75 tomorrow. Should be about 80 over the weekend. But more clouds and showers for Saturday and Sunday both. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice. Advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. On view now. More at PEM.org. The Kennedy Center honorees are named. We'll hear about them coming up in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR. Minnesota Twins beat the Red Sox 6 to nothing this afternoon thanks to Twins pitcher Joe Ryan, who completed the Twins' first nine-inning game, complete game, and first shutout since 2018. Sox move on to Chicago for a three-game weekend series. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Babson College. Hone your business skills at the school ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Build your success story at babson.edu success. And members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. John Prine spent decades writing songs about characters of great struggle and loss. Now his son Tommy Prine has created new music that reflects his own loss. I think the passing of my father stirred up a lot of things in me. Tommy Prine talks about how his dad inspired his album This Far South on the next morning edition from NPR News. You 
Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBY. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For many years, the U.S. tech industry has relied on foreign talent, people who come to the country on work visas. Now the industry is contracting and there are layoffs and things have gotten complicated for many foreign workers. Amanda Aronchik from our Planet Money podcast reports. In January of this year, a man named Nalajan woke up to some grim news about his job at Google. It was about 5.30 in the morning. My uh, wife was woken up with her phone vibrating, and she had received an email about uh, the layoffs in the organization. Layoffs at Google effective immediately. His wife also works there, so they're not sure what this means. Has he been laid off? Has she? Have they both been laid off? Nalanjan got up and went straight to his laptop, but he can't log in. He's like, come on, there must be something wrong with the network. It took me about 15 uh, minutes of trying out different ways of logging in to realize, no, this has actually happened and this is the reality. I have just lost, lost my job. His wife was not laid off, but he was. Nalanjan had moved from India to the U.S. in 2022 for what was his dream job, global product lead for omni-channel advertising products. Basically, he worked at Google in digital advertising. And he hoped to launch a new phase of his career here in the U.S. I should say we're only using Nalanjan's first name so we don't jeopardize his job search. Nalanjan came to the U.S. on what's called an H-1B visa, a temporary work visa. And once he was terminated, he would have 60 days to find work or leave the country. We followed him through that months-long search starting back in February. The clock really is ticking because I need to land an interview and start the process as soon as possible. The fact that Nalanjan is here for work and is hoping to stay has a lot to do with the type of visa he's on. There are two main types, immigrant and non-immigrant. Immigrant visas are for people who are moving to the U.S. to stay. And non-immigrant visas are for people who are just coming for a while, for work or a trip. Then they'll go home. The H-1B visa is a little peculiar. Officially, it is called a non-immigrant visa, but it's considered to have dual intent, meaning people can intend to come for a short while while also intending to stay, if they can make it work. This, in part, was making the situation so thorny for Nalanjan and his wife, who's also here on a work visa. We are expecting a baby in May, and I wouldn't want any kind of an immigration hassle to crop up. Uh, which makes me go back to India, and we are in two separate continents during this time. And that was a possibility. The next time we heard from Nalanjan was in March, when we got a voice message. By then, the stress of the job search was getting to him. To be honest, I'm operating like a clockwork, following my routine of job hunting, partnering with my pregnant wife, who is in the third trimester, assuring our families back at home in India that situations have not yet spiraled out of control going to bed every night, vacillating between despair and hope. When we spoke with him again in April, he figured he'd applied to nearly 200 jobs. Out of all those applications, Nalanjan got two job interviews. Two! But he had a job offer from one of them. He just still needed to finish up the H-1B paperwork to transfer his visa to the new company. But yeah, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed and hoping that the approval goes through because if the approval doesn't go through, then I'll be back to square one. Meanwhile, he was also waiting for their baby. The due date was a month away. When we do speak again, there are just 11 days before his visa is set to expire. So, yeah, I mean, uh, quite a few updates recently. And uh, so on May 5th, I have become a dad to a little girl. A girl. 
Nalanjan says his wife is doing well and so is the baby. And then I asked, what's up with your visa status and that job offer? Oh yeah, I was waiting for you to ask this question. Like a scene right out of a movie, the baby is born, and Nalanjan and his wife realize they are really parents. Then when the baby takes a nap, Nalanjan sits down and pulls out his phone. I saw that I had received an email from the immigration attorneys. I opened it tentatively. And uh, the only thing that flashed in front of my eyes was a screenshot of the word approved. So I did not even read the body of the email. I just saw approved and I told it to my wife. So that's the way I found out. (laughs) The baby was born on a Friday and that Monday, Nalanjan was at his new office starting his new job. While some people might have been sad to go back to work so soon, Nalanjan was thrilled. Amanda Ronchik, NPR News. And a note, Google is a financial supporter of NPR. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. What connects the flag that inspired the Star-Spangled Banner, Superman's cape, and Tito Puente's drums? NPR's special correspondent, Susan Stamberg, knows. They're all part of a spiffy, noisy, newish exhibition at the Smithsonian Museum of American History. We cover about 150 years of entertainment history in the United States. Curator John Trapman and staff sorted through thousands of objects, many scattered in various exhibits throughout the museum, and put about 200 of them together in Entertainment Nation to tell American history through things that amused or thrilled or dismayed or moved us over decades. We have taken about 10 steps and we have gone past Marian Anderson, (laughs) R2-D2, Judy Garland, What's entertainment without the ruby slippers or Prince's guitar? We performed some paint analysis on a paint chip on the back of the guitar and found seven layers of paint, different colors. We were able to determine um, with all likelihood that this is the guitar that's actually in the film Purple Rain. What's entertainment without Archie Bunker's beat-up armchair? Archie and Edith both played such different roles on that show. One's a bigot and one's not. (laughs) And that was Norman Lear's intention to really explore the power of television and convening these conversations. On All in the Family, Archie helped us talk about race. Oh, this is Althea Gibson's tennis dress? The History Museum shows its spotless, immaculate, African-American Gibson wore it when she won at Wimbledon in 1958. Segregation was a widespread fact of life. In a white world, her triumph was color. Mr. Rogers' red cardigan, Oscar's trash can. Visitors of all ages love (laughs) this moment where they turn around the corner and they see Oscar the Grouch, (laughs) they see Elmo. It's all kind of a celebration of children's television and how children's television also has worked in important ways to inform kids about the big stuff. Race, fairness, ideals, death, and fears, all touched on by things we bought, heard, saw, laughed at, loved over the decades. Entertainment Nation. One of the strong takeaways is that there's a persistence of common concerns and goals and ambitions for people in this country. 
curator John Troutman's best hope is that visitors will realize... Important questions about our democracy are everywhere and in entertainment. <laughs> Susan Stamberg, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. More at KeeperSecurity.com. From Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson, starring Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, and Tom Hanks, now playing in New York and Los Angeles, in theaters everywhere this Friday. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rescue crews discovered a field of debris in the part of the Atlantic where it's believed the submersible vessel, the Titan, dove to see the wreck of the Titanic. Essentially, we found five different major pieces of, of debris that told us that it was the uh, remains of the Titan. It's Thursday, June 22nd. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's no sign any of the five men who'd been on board survived. Also coming up, tech leaders are sounding the alarm about the perils of artificial intelligence. A lot of people who work inside the AI companies do not know even how we will safely steward what already exists. There's many dangerous capabilities that are already out there. More on the need to regulate AI worldwide. Also, the stuffed portobello mushrooms on the uh, menu tonight for dinner with the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, thanks to a guest chef who specializes in plant-based cuisine. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The search for a small submersible last seen near the site in the North Atlantic where the Titanic struck an iceberg and sank more than a century ago has ended. U.S. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger confirming this afternoon a debris field found near the famed ocean liner is indeed from the submersible Titan that was carrying five people when it went missing Sunday. In consultation with experts from within the unified command the debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber upon this determination we immediately notified the families the five on board the small submersible included the chief executive of the company that operated the vessel ocean gate and four others a british adventurer a french explorer and a pakistani entrepreneur and his son an unmanned robot deployed from above found the wreckage just off titanic's bow the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled against the Navajo Nation, declaring the federal government has no legal obligation to help the tribe secure water on its western reservation. 
More from NPR's Nina Totenberg. Facing growing water scarcity problems, the Navajo Nation brought a lawsuit contending that the U.S. has treaty obligations to ensure adequate access to the Colorado River Basin, an area in which several states have agreed to divvy up the water. But the Supreme Court, by a 5-4 to four vote, said that under the existing 1868 treaty, water access must be determined by Congress and the president, not the courts. Writing for the dissenters, Justice Neil Gorsuch compared the tribe's long battle for water rights to standing in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles, waiting patiently for someone, anyone, to help them, only to be told repeatedly that they've been standing in the wrong line and must try another. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. The House has opened an impeachment probe against President Biden. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports House Speaker Kevin McCarthy headed off an immediate up or down vote on removing the president. The House approved a resolution along party lines that directs two committees to investigate any grounds for removing the president. The move was a compromise the Speaker negotiated with conservatives who want an impeachment vote now after more moderate GOP lawmakers objected to a vote before specific evidence is presented. Colorado Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert says impeachment is warranted now based on Biden's border policies. Instead of enforcing our immigration laws, he has lawlessly ignored them. Democrats say GOP lawmakers are more focused on distracting from former President Donald Trump's legal issues than passing bills on issues Americans care about. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. On Wall Street, the Dow was down four points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts has set another record for deaths from drug overdose. More than 2,300 people died last year, according to preliminary state numbers out today. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports it's the third straight year of rising fatalities. Public Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein calls the numbers sobering. We're deeply committed to addressing substance use disorder in a range of ways, including providing resources to communities to reverse the trend in overdose deaths and supporting evidence-based harm reduction strategies. They include continued distribution of naloxone, the drug to reverse an overdose. The state is also pledging more money for treatment and more local data to help communities target interventions. The picture varies significantly across the state and by race. Last year, deaths spiked again for black people who use drugs, rising 42 percent. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. We have more now in the Coast Guard's announcement this afternoon that the pilot and four passengers aboard the Titan submersible did not survive the journey. Carl Hartsfield of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute says it appears the Titan imploded before it reached the Titanic. The size of the debris field is uh, consistent with that implosion in the water column. The submersible disappeared Sunday, the Coast Guard said today. The noises detected by sonar earlier in the search were not related to the Titan. There's a new plaque in the South End honoring an apartment where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King lived. The apartment was torn down when the Southwest Corridor Park was constructed. The civil rights activists lived there for the first year of their marriage. They met in Boston while they both attended school here. In the forecast, pretty delightful today. Cloudy overnight tonight, chance of showers, temperatures about 60. Then for tomorrow, not so nice. Should be about 75 degrees, so comfortable, but really cloudy. Showers in the afternoon. And then for the weekend, more showers, maybe some thunderstorms. High temperatures about 80, both Saturday and Sunday. At least that's the way it looks right now. 67 degrees in Boston at 5.07.
WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. On a Thursday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The search is over in the Atlantic Ocean, the submersible that went missing four days ago on its way down to the Titanic wreckage has been found. The Coast Guard has confirmed that all five people aboard have died in what appears to have been a catastrophic implosion. NPR's Tovia Smith is following the story and joins us now. Tovia, this is a tragic turning point. What can you tell us? Well, it's a confirmation of everyone's worst fears. Uh, Even given what we thought was a dwindling oxygen supply, many were clinging to hope that there would be survivors. But families were notified earlier today that is not the case. Uh, Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger says the sub imploded on its way down to the ocean floor. In consultation with experts from within the Unified Command, the debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. So now the wreckage of this sub is laying on the ocean floor just about 1,600 feet away from the wreckage of the Titanic that the passengers were hoping to view. And I'll add, uh, the debris from the sub was first spotted by a remote-operated vehicle that just arrived this morning to help the search. Just this morning, I mean, Tovia, those are key pieces of equipment. They're arriving there four days into this search and rescue operation. Why so late? That's a question we're probably going to be trying to answer for a while. Um, So first off, this is far away, and it takes a lot of time to mobilize such big equipment and get it all there. Uh, Also, there's been a lot of finger pointing, and I'll refrain from repeating that until we have the facts. But one fact we do know is that the ship lost communication capability on Sunday morning, and the Coast Guard says it got the call for help on Sunday evening. So there are questions about that apparent delay uh, by OceanGate, the company that owns the sub. I spoke to uh, David Marquet, who's a former Coast Guard commander. He told me that they may have delayed because, as we know, uh, they lost communication with the sub in the past. There's motivation for not getting everybody excited and not having the Coast Guard expend resources unnecessarily. But not only is that hours, but it's hours of daylight. So I think there was an unconscionable delay in reporting the problem. OceanGate had no comment on that. Uh, In a statement today, the company said it was grieving those lost, and it noted the spirit of adventure shared by all those on board. Hmm. I mean, I have to imagine that families now mourning loved ones also have questions about that delay. Certainly questions and some anger. Uh, One relative of a British businessman on board was quoted as saying it took far too long for OceanGate to report the trouble. Um, I'll note that this sub was what even the company calls an experimental vessel, and all passengers have to sign a long, detailed waiver warning of possible injury or death, and it says very clearly that the sub, I'm quoting here, has not been approved or certified by any regulatory body. So already experts are talking about tightening regulation of this relatively uh, new industry of undersea tourism. Here's uh, what Marquet, the former Coast Guard commander, uh, said about OceanGate. They wanted their cake and eat it too. They wanted to not comply with the industry standards, not get certified. But oh, when they're in trouble, 
all the resources of at least four different governments come rushing to your aid. And to me, it's like, you're going to go up on a mountain without safety ropes. We're not going to risk a helicopter to pull you off the mountain. I mean, that's the kind of discussion that we need to have. I want to mention a comment from one family member quickly here. Uh, this was a young woman who lost her father, the renowned Titanic researcher, P.H. Nargillet, and she said her dad was where he loved to be, and she preferred the idea of him dying in his happy place. Mm. And along those lines, even the Coast Guard rear admiral himself mentioned that he hopes it was a relief to the family to know that the passengers did not suffer days of anguish since it appears to have been an instantaneous death. NPR's Tovia Smith. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to get a readout now from the roundtable that President Biden convened this week in San Francisco to discuss what he called the risks and enormous promises of artificial intelligence. My administration is committed. It's committed to safeguarding America's rights and safety, from protecting privacy to addressing bias and disinformation, to making sure AI systems are safe before they are released. Well, Tristan Harris is among the tech leaders who met the president on Tuesday. He co-founded the Center for Humane Technology, and before that, he held a senior post at Google. For years, he has worked to raise awareness about the threats that AI poses, and he told me some of his takeaways from the meeting. We had quite a diverse set of uh, stakeholders at the table, uh, people focusing on everything from uh, AI Uh, fairness and discrimination issues, Joy Bullamweeney from Algorithmic Justice League, the issues of AI and predictive policing or, you know, um, falsely identifying people and face face recognition, the costs of that. You know, AI's promise is that it'll help us develop cancer drugs and um, solutions to energy problems and climate change, uh, but we'll need more public interest funding for that. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about truth, trust, and democracy. Because for all the issues that social media causes and misinformation and disinformation, AI will supercharge that, as people know the example of a video that went viral of President Biden falsely giving a speech saying that he was instituting the draft and that went viral, right? Or the photo of the Pentagon that had been bombed, which it had not been. Um, And these kinds of things can move the stock market and really affect um, our financial system um, or, you know, what people think in a already fragile world. So um, we talked a lot about truth, trust, and democracy. That's actually where I focused with President Biden. Got it. And was your sense that the message was heard? Absolutely. I think that his team is making this a uh, major priority. This was just one meeting, but there there's lots of ongoing engagement. Uh, Senator Schumer, um, I think just yesterday, published a big speech on the things that uh, they're planning on doing in Congress uh, in creating AI regulations. So this is moving. Um, we do need to move very quickly, and it's not just a national issue. Is there a useful precedent to have in mind for regulating technology that is so new and changing so fast? Yeah, I mean, AI is certainly new in how fast the technology evolves. Um, there is a level setting of the unique problem and challenge that AI poses because it is digital and moves around the world at the speed of bits uh, and the speed of network connections. And so it is going to be a challenge. But, you know, we could have been one of those nuclear scientists who, after the first atomic bomb was uh, exploded, just say, well, I guess this is inevitable. I guess the whole world's going to have nuclear bombs. And instead, a collection of people worked very, very, very hard to make sure that we now live in a world with only nine countries with nuclear weapons and we signed the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, and we had to come to international coordination between the two major powers. I think we need to do that with AI. 
And so circle back to my central question of uh, what kind of sense you walked away from this roundtable from in terms of where the White House is on this. Were any specific proposals floated in terms of regulation or are they still, uh, in your view, in the in the fact finding phase of all this? Uh, in the meeting, we didn't focus on the specific regulatory proposals. It was more a discussion around the different issues that are at play. Mm-hmm. Um, in other conversations that I've had with various um, people in the administration and Office of Science and Technology Policy and, and elsewhere, um, there is a deep ongoing discussion about specific proposals. Um, as an example, uh, we can talk about ethics and responsibility all day long but that will get bulldozed by the incentives to deploy these technologies as fast as possible. And one of the solutions to that is liability. That if companies are liable for the downstream harms that emerge from releasing a big AI model and what people can do with it, that can slow down the pace of market development. So that's an example of something that that could move ahead. Before I let you go, I want to step back and just get your sense of the stakes here. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a talk that you gave in March in which you said, and I'm quoting, 50% of AI researchers believe there is a 10% or greater chance that humans go extinct from our inability to control AI. Are you part of that 50%? Um, I want people to know, I don't want to alarm people, um, but I do think that we have to have an honest assessment of the risk so that we can take the actions that are necessary to lower that risk. And I know a lot of people who work inside the AI companies who do not know even how we will safely steward what already exists. There's many dangerous capabilities that are already out there. I do think the stakes of this are incredibly high. And that's why I think people should be calling their members of Congress to advocate for the need to get this international regulation uh, in place and these guardrails. Tristan Harris is co-founder and executive director of the Center for Humane Technology. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. The Kennedy Center has announced its newest class of honorees. As NPR's Tilda Wilson reports, this year's recipients include Billy Crystal, Dionne Warwick, and the First Lady of Hip Hop. Queen Latifah is among the five honorees. Early in her career, people wanted her to be just a rapper. Decades later, as a musician, actress, and producer, Latifah says she's grateful for this award, not just for her, but for her community. But don't you be calling me out my name. I bring rap to those who disrespect me like a dame. Latifah is the second hip-hop artist to receive this award following LL Cool J. Other musical honorees this year include Barry Gibb, who played along with his late brothers in the supergroup The Bee Gees. pop sensation Dionne Warwick, and opera star Renee Fleming. Comedian Billy Crystal, best known for Saturday Night Live and When Harry Met Sally, will also be recognized. Kennedy Center chairman David M. Rubenstein says Crystal's behind some of the most hilarious Hollywood scenes from the last half century, in roles like Calcifer in Howl's Moving Castle. She likes my spark! The 46th annual ceremony will air in December, and Gloria Estefan is set to host for the third time. Tilda Wilson, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Dow closed right where it began today. S&P and Nasdaq rose to snap a three-day losing streak. S&P gained nearly four-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq picked up nearly a full percent. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. Union workers at Encore have set a strike deadline for the end of the month. 1,400 housekeepers, cooks, and other staff are demanding increased wages and benefits, similar to those of other unionized hotel employees in the area. Encore says it's working to provide employees with competitive wages and benefits. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BG Catering Concepts, corporate and social event planning and catering for special occasions. BGCateringConcepts.com. And BU College of Fine Arts. Earn your graduate degree at a tight-knit arts community in a vibrant university. BU.edu slash CFA slash grad. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, muscular dystrophy is a heartbreaking disorder that primarily affects young boys and causes their muscles to waste away. Once the damage occurs, it's irreversible. We need to get therapies to patients sooner versus later. The FDA has approved the first gene therapy of its kind for the most common form of this disease. The therapy was developed by a company in Cambridge. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with season two of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI. To help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U From NPR News, this is All Things Considered, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The Fight for Midnight is a new young adult novel with an unusual setting, the Texas State Capitol during a filibuster. Ten years ago, former Texas State Senator Wendy Davis spoke for nearly 11 hours straight to prevent a vote on a bill that would have restricted access to abortion. The novel is by Dan Solomon, a journalist who covered that filibuster for the Austin Chronicle. As NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, he tells the story through the eyes of a teenage boy. 15-year-old Alex Collins is preparing for a lousy summer. He's made some bad decisions, lost good friends, and doing community service for some trouble he got into. Then Cassie Ramirez, a girl he's had a crush on since fourth grade, calls him and asks him to come to the Texas State Capitol. Not only is Cassie the prettiest girl in school, but she's also one of the nicest even to me and the people I used to hang out with, when plenty of other people just saw us as weirdos. Except that Alex has only a vague idea what's going on at the Capitol. As far as all the abortion stuff goes, I haven't really thought about it much. But I'm a guy, so why would I? Nobody talks to teenage boys about abortion. 
author Dan Solomon. Like that is pretty far off of the radar for things that teenage boys talk about or or are talked to about or encouraged to, you know, have much opinion on. In the fight for midnight, Alex is not just a teen boy, he's also apolitical. He's shocked when he goes to the Texas State Capitol and finds it packed with people of all ages on both sides of the issue. Solomon says it was almost like the filibuster had three acts. The main character, then State Senator Wendy Davis. The first act was sort of the setup to it where uh, Wendy Davis is just kind of there talking. As we began to debate this bill on the Senate floor, Last week. In the novel, Alex is unimpressed. What she's saying is boring. Something about how we wound up at this moment on this day, on the Senate floor, debating this bill. And it's like everything she says, she finds five words to say when one would do. (laughs) It made me laugh several times during the book. Today, Wendy Davis is a senior advisor to Planned Parenthood Texas Votes. He talks about me droning on and on. And yes, I did that the day of the filibuster, but I just do that in general. I can't help myself. I'm a very wordy human being. In the second act, Republicans in support of the abortion bill tried to get Davis to stop talking. In the third, Democrats tried to keep the filibuster going. The crowd erupted. If we can have order in the chamber, so that the members could properly cast their vote. They couldn't take the vote until the room was quiet enough and that everything had to be over at midnight, and they couldn't get the room quiet until 12.01. Solomon wondered how the filibuster would have affected him if he'd been a teenager, trying to form his own opinions. I wanted a, a character who could tell the story of learning about abortion um, the way that I did, you know, because I come from a, a Catholic family and I had to kind of learn where my values were around this on my own. In the novel, Alex has several hours during the filibuster to listen. On the pro-choice side, there's Wendy Davis reading letter after letter from women about why they needed access to abortion. And one of Alex's friends tells him she got pregnant even though she was on the pill. She was applying to colleges and wasn't ready to be a mom. Against abortion rights, there's Alex's crush, Cassie, who is Catholic. She's kind of modeled on people like my mom, people I know who are very sincere in their conviction around abortion and that abortion is is wrong. But for Cassie, it's also very personal. She tells Alex her mom had a complicated pregnancy with her. The doctors told her she should probably have an abortion. They said it would be a mercy, but she wouldn't do it. And here I am. Do you get it? I'm not just pro-life because I'm Catholic. I'm pro-life because I'm alive. Wendy Davis faced a similar predicament, but had an abortion. I discovered that I was carrying a much-wanted pregnancy with a fatal fetal abnormality. And I made the decision that I made that was right for me, my family, and honestly, the hoped-for baby um, that... I believe, deserves the mercy that we showed in that instance. Davis applauds Solomon for creating characters who come to their opposing positions honestly. He didn't vilify either side. He worked very hard for us to have an open heart and an open mind as we consider the perspectives of both sides of this issue. The Fight for Midnight is about the messy process of figuring out who you are and what you believe. 
Today, Texas has one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Tonight, President Biden is dining with a special guest, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. It's a high-stakes event as the White House tries to strengthen its ties with India. State dinners show off the best of American cuisine. The main course usually features beef or lamb, but tonight, 400 guests will be looking down at a stuffed portobello mushroom. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports. Prime Minister Modi is a strict vegetarian, so tonight's menu is almost entirely plant-based. No meat, no dairy, no eggs. It's the first time in recent history that the menu for a state dinner has been vegetarian, so the White House brought in a guest chef to help, Nina Curtis from California, who specializes in plant-based cooking. We have curated a menu that really showcases the best in American cuisine, also then seasoned with Indian elements and flavors. Those flavors include saffron and the risotto and millet, a grain commonly used in Asia. The dessert is a twist on an American classic, a cardamom-infused strawberry shortcake. The main course features the portobello and loads of vegetables. They are light, they're refreshing, they're satisfying, and yes, satiating. Planning a state dinner takes months, especially when a guest chef is recruited. Back in April, when the Bidens invited South Korea's president for a state dinner, they invited Edward Lee to help. He's a Korean-American chef with restaurants in D.C. and Louisville, Kentucky. Lee says the job was one of the peaks of his career, but also at its peak was his stress level. Very high stakes. Um... Normally, if you screw up at dinner, you just have some, you know, complaining guests. But, you know, these are heads of nations, so you can't. The pressure is really on. Lee says First Lady Jill Biden was very involved in the plans, but he was given a lot of leeway to piece the menu together. Really, the only uh, directive that I was given was uh, President Biden likes ice cream. The day of the dinner, he says, is about the finishing touches and the fine tuning. Like, is there just enough salt in the sauce? Is the timing right for when the dishes are brought out? But his advice for Curtis, the guest chef tonight, is to take it all in. Enjoy it. Take some time to stop. Look at the beauty of the White House. The White House is hoping their guests from India will do the same. Diva Shivaram, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up in about 10 minutes, lacrosse originated with Native Americans who are still some of the finest players. The famed Iroquois Nationals have a new name this season. We'll find out why. A nice evening ahead. Sunsets at 824. The days are getting shorter now. Today was two seconds shorter than yesterday. Tonight, overcast skies down around 60. Tomorrow, lots of clouds, kind of damp in the upper 70s. Saturday is looking downright wet. Showers and thunderstorms, mild though, up around 80. Then for Sunday, sunshine burns through the clouds, just breaking 80 degrees.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. Should companies require remote workers to go back to the office? Consultant Callie Williams-Yost says that's the wrong question. It's over. Flexibility is. Now you can decide how you're going to optimize it. Or you can keep fighting it and miss the moment. How and where you work best and what that means for organizational culture. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The pilot and four passengers of a missing submersible that disappeared near the wreckage of the Titanic are dead. Coast Guard officials say they've notified the families of the crew of the Titan, which has been missing for several days. Rear Admiral John Mogger says the submersible likely imploded. He says a remote-operated vehicle found pieces of the nose and tail on the sea floor just off the bow of the Titanic. This is an incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor, uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. He says that debris was consistent with the loss of the pressure chamber. The implosion likely happened on its way down to the Titanic, instantly killing all on board. Former Texas Congressman Will Hurd announced today that he's seeking the Republican nomination in next year's presidential election. Hurd is joining an already crowded field led, uh, field of Republicans led by former President Donald Trump. NPR's Ashley Lopez has more. Hurd, a former CIA officer, was elected in 2014 to represent a congressional district that stretches along the U.S.-Mexico border. He was a vocal opponent of President Trump's plan to build a border wall along the country's southern border. In 2019, he announced he would not be seeking re-election. During an appearance on CBS Mornings today, Hurd announced he was running to modernize the U.S. economy and to address political divisions in the country. Our neighbors are not our enemies. They're our fellow Americans who we just happen to have a disagreement with. Hurd is joining a field of almost a dozen major candidates seeking the GOP nomination. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today as the tech sector got a boost from stocks led by Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft, the tech-heavy uh, NASDAQ gained 128 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Worcester woman is suing a pregnancy center claiming it misdiagnosed her life-threatening condition. She says the Clearway Clinic in Worcester told her the ultrasound it performed last October showed her fetus was healthy. One month later, the woman says she needed an emergency abortion for a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. Her lawsuit alleges Clearway failed to provide proper medical care. It also says the center's true purpose is to steer women away from getting an abortion. The Clearway Clinic has not responded to WBUR for comment. Congresswoman Anna Presley is introducing federal legislation she says will protect abortion access in the U.S. This week marks the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision to strike down Roe v. Wade and remove the constitutional right to abortion. Presley says lawmakers need to codify abortion rights into law. Our bill moves us closer to a truly just America by protecting patients and providers from criminalization, 
removing systemic barriers to care, and calling for bold federal investments in abortion care. In the years since the Dobbs decision, 25 states have enacted laws to ban or restrict abortion access. More Massachusetts residents than ever are dying of opioid-related overdoses. Today's state figures released show there were more than 2,300 overdose deaths in Massachusetts last year. That's an average of just over six deaths a day and 2.5% increase from 2021. Overdose death rates among black residents increased the most. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Minnesota Twins starter Joe Ryan lusted all nine innings this afternoon against the Red Sox and shut out Boston 6 to nothing. It's the first complete game for the Twins in five years. Ryan retired three Sox hitters in order in the ninth. The two teams split the four-game series. In the forecast, cloudy tonight. Chance of showers, lows about 60. And for tomorrow, more clouds, possibly showers as well. Highs about 75 degrees. For Saturday, lots of clouds around, showers, temperatures about 80. And then for Sunday, we could see some sunshine with highs about 81 degrees. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Off the coast of Greece, more than 80 bodies have now been recovered after one of the deadliest migrant shipwrecks in the Mediterranean in years. Up to 750 people are believed to have been aboard a fishing vessel that set sail from Libya, headed towards Italy and then capsized off Greece last week. Well, today, questions are mounting over whether Greek and European authorities could have done more to prevent the tragedy. Reporter Lydia Imanolidou joins me from Athens. Hey, Lydia. Thank you for having me. These are such grim numbers in terms of uh, the number of people still missing, the number confirmed dead. What is the latest? Well, several more bodies were recovered just this week. The number of survivors is at 104 people. Many of them are Syrians, Pakistanis, and Egyptians. Most of those who have been rescued uh, were taken to a refugee camp on the mainland just outside of Athens. And if you do the math, that leaves hundreds of people still missing, up to 500, according to the UN. Family members have been showing up to the refugee camp I mentioned to find their loved ones. I was there yesterday and I spoke to a young Syrian. He didn't want us to use any names because he fears for the safety of his family back in Syria. Uh, But he came from Germany to look for his 21-year-old cousin who fled Syria to avoid army conscription. So he had to flee and he was applying for visas for two years now. And um, he didn't get anything, so that was his only way, yeah. 
His only way was getting on that overcrowded boat in Libya. And this young man you just heard from did find two of his cousin's friends who were on the boat with him, but nobody has seen the cousin since the boat capsized. I'm still trying to, to see if his body is with the Greek authorities, but so far, no news. And Mary Louise, there are many others uh, like this young man who are eager for any information on loved ones who haven't been accounted for. Of course. Tell me a little more, Lydia, about this criticism of Greece's initial response, whether more could and should have been done to save people on board this vessel. What are the facts? Well, we know that the boat capsized overnight local time on Wednesday last week. We also know the Greek Coast Guard was observing the vessel for several hours before it sank. And one question is why Greek authorities didn't immediately intervene, given how unseaworthy and overcrowded this vessel was. Uh, according to international law experts, Greek authorities had an obligation to act even if people aboard rejected assistance, which Greek authorities claimed they did. What do we know about what caused the boat to capsize? What are you hearing there? Many of the survivors who spoke to me, to other journalists, and to the lawyers representing them, they say that the Greek Coast Guard attached a rope to the boat, started towing it, and that this caused the boat to sink. Greek authorities initially rejected using a rope, but their narrative has shifted over the past few days. Now they've told media that they did use a rope to stabilize the boat and assess the conditions aboard, but they denied towing the vessel. And for the survivors, those those you have talked to and others, you said many of them are at this refugee camp just outside Athens. What's mm -hmm. next for them? Well, they're going through the asylum process here in Greece, and many want to leave the country after that. Uh, Rogayan Adel is a 23-year-old survivor from Kobani in northern Syria. He spoke to me through an interpreter. I plan to go to the Germany because I have uh, a brother there and I'm ready to take the risk once again uh, to arrive Germany. So Adel traveled for three and a half months through Syria, Lebanon, Egypt and Libya to get on this boat that eventually sank. He says he paid 5,000 euros, that's about $5,500. Many of the survivors I spoke to, like Adel, their number one hope is to be granted asylum and be relocated to other EU countries. Oh, just heartbreaking. Thanks for your reporting, Lydia. Thank you for having me. That is Lydia Imanulidou speaking to us from Athens. Big news today for some kids who suffer from muscular dystrophy. The Food and Drug Administration approved the first gene therapy for the most common form of the devastating muscle disease. But the agency is restricting which children can get it until more evidence becomes available about how well it works. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now with the details. Hi there. Hi there, Juana. So Rob, this sounds like a really important development. What, tell us, why is it such a big deal? Yeah, this is a landmark decision for two reasons. First of all, this could be huge for many kids born with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is the most common form of this incurable genetic disease. It also marks a milestone for the field of gene therapy. What would this mean for muscular dystrophy patients? 
Well, you know, muscular dystrophy is caused by a defect in the gene that produces a crucial muscle protein called dystrophin. It primarily affects boys, causing their muscles to waste away. They quickly start to lose the ability to enjoy all the simple things little boys do, like run, climb stairs, you know, monkey around on playground equipment. They're usually in wheelchairs by the time they're teenagers, on ventilators by the time they're young adults, and die in their 30s and 40s. This gene therapy is designed to save these kids from that destiny. Wow, that sounds incredible. Rom, how does this gene therapy work exactly? So doctors give patients a single infusion of trillions of genetically engineered harmless viruses that ferry a gene into muscles to produce a miniature version of dystrophin. And research shows that it works at for that. And so the company that developed this asked the FDA to approve it under a controversial program that lets the agency accelerate access to treatments before definitive evidence is available that they work. The argument is that there's no time to waste. The longer these kids go without treatment, the more their muscles wither away. So desperate parents and advocates have been urging the agency to make this first gene therapy you know, available. And that's pretty big. It wasn't that long long ago that all gene therapies had to jump through more hoops, not fewer. But others have been saying, wait, there just isn't enough evidence to know whether it's really safe and works. And if kids get this unproven gene therapy, that could prevent them from getting other treatments in the pipeline that might be better. Okay. So Rob, what exactly did the FDA do today? The FDA kind of split the difference and approved it for the youngest kids, those ages four and five, based on some evidence suggesting it helps those kids. But the FDA could expand eligibility if a confirmatory study the company is conducting shows it works. So what has been the reaction to all of this? It's mixed. Those who have doubts praise the agency's restraint, though some thought this is even premature. Here's Dr. Caleb Alexander from Johns Hopkins. This is a really critical decision for the FDA to get right. This has implications not only for those who may receive this product, but it also sends an important signal regarding what the FDA will require for future products to treat this and other similarly devastating diseases. On the other side, parents, advocates, and some researchers are glad the agency at least went this far. Deborah Miller heads the group Cured Duchenne and has a son with the disease. Today is a very important day, but every single day, these boys are losing muscle cells. And so when you have a son with Duchenne and you see them getting weaker right in front of your eyes, you understand that we need to get therapies to patients sooner versus later. The Sarepta, the company that's developed the gene therapy, says mm-hmm. it will become available as soon as possible at a cost of $3.2 million for each patient. NPR's Rob Stein. Thank you. Sure thing. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A top lacrosse team is reclaiming its indigenous identity after generations of being known as the Iroquois Nationals. Current team members say that name was derogatory. Noelle Evans of member station WXXI caught up with the team just before the world championship. We're in the parking lot of a hotel near the Buffalo International Airport. Lacrosse player Dehoga Nandikog stands by a pickup truck where there's a handful of equipment duffel bags. These are what? So that's a helmet? Yeah. That's pretty. Yeah. He holds up a helmet with a pattern of repeating squares and a leaf, a symbol of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy wampum. Nandikog played with this team when they were known as the Iroquois Nationals. 
The origin of the word Iroquois is the subject of debate. But present-day Haudenosaunee connected to a French variant of snake and murderer. Leo Noland is the executive director of the Haudenosaunee Nationals program. The name Iroquois is a bit of a disparaging label more than anything else. We really felt it was incumbent upon us to really uh, look at who we really are and how we refer to ourselves. Haudenosaunee means people of the longhouse. The name officially changed last year. Under their former name, the team won bronze at the last World Lacrosse Championship. Nandikog agrees with the name change, but he says he doesn't feel any difference on the field. It's awesome now that we have the Haudenosaunee, but it's always been our people who we're playing for. His family is the reason he became a lacrosse player. His older brother gave him his first lacrosse stick as a baby. His grandfather, Papa Jote, encouraged him to pursue it. I write jotes on my wrist every time because I tape my wrist up. Because <laughs> no one really knows this, but like my Papa Joe, unlike his deathbed, like basically told me to go play lacrosse. Lacrosse comes from the Haudenosaunee tradition. For centuries, it has been embraced as a sacred gift from the creator, ceremonially played as a medicine game. I grew up with the Onondaga people. This is the people who gave us the game of lacrosse. Lars Tiffany is a white man who is now the team's head coach. He shows me some footage of the team playing. It's amazing the talent that you can find with the Haudenosaunee men. Let's go, let's go, let's go! I don't believe there's another game that is connected to a spirituality like this game is. He says this is the spirit and intensity they'll bring with them to the World Lacrosse Championship. But right now, they're waiting on a few more players to arrive ahead of an early morning flight to San Diego, where they will compete among 30 different nations. General Manager Darcy Paulus says the energy this time around feels different. They're hungry. They want the gold medal. Paulus says this is about more than striving to be champions. This is an opportunity to uplift an indigenous tradition that survived colonialism and the cultural genocide of Indian boarding schools. They always say, play for those who can't, and there's thousands of kids that never got the chance. You add those up to into families, like that's probably hundreds of thousands of people that never got an opportunity to do anything. So for him, this is about way more than a sporting event. Having 30 teams and this many players come to San Diego to play, the game that our people, our families have created and helped grow to this point, it's, it's huge. Lacrosse is currently shortlisted for the 2028 Olympics. Paulus says the tournament is also a chance to show the International Olympic Committee the significance of lacrosse and the Haudenosaunee's participation. For NPR News, I'm Noelle Evans. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening to us this evening. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the Dobbs decision that removed constitutional rights to abortion a year ago shook the political landscape. We'll hear how it's shaping the 2024 presidential election. That's coming up. This reminder for Boston commuters, the massive Sumner Tunnel Project is going to cause major traffic headaches. The Sumner links the airport to downtown Boston. It's going to be shut down for two months starting July 5th for repairs. WBRS and Indoor Anna Mecca says there are ways you can plan for the disruption. 
Transportation officials say alternative modes of transit will probably be your best bet, especially if you're coming from the North Shore or East Boston. That's where they expect the greatest traffic impact will be. So the Blue Line is an option or the commuter rail, and there's even new ferry service from Lynn. The Blue Line will be free, so that's important to note, and there'll be reduced fares on the Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. There'll also be reduced fares on some ferries from Winthrop and East Boston. That's an inshore and Omeka. If you're going to or from Logan, the Logan Express bus service will be discounted, and more buses will be added to the Silver Line. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. Go EndlessEnergy.com or 775-END-LESS. Clouds should slowly gather tonight. The off chance of showers lows about 60. Should climb to the upper 70s tomorrow, but the sun should be scarce. Clouds and showers should rain tomorrow. And then for the weekend, showers on Saturday, pretty gray, creeping to about 80 degrees. Could make it to the low 80s on Sunday with some sunshine breaking through the clouds. It's 549. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. John Prine spent decades writing songs about characters of great struggle and loss. Now his son Tommy Prine has created new music that reflects his own loss. I think the passing of my father stirred up a lot of things in me. Tommy Prine talks about how his dad inspired his album This Far South on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Final Fantasy has been one of the most critically acclaimed and beloved gaming franchises since it was first released back in 1987. And since then, there have been all types of different sequels, spin-offs, even movies and books. The key to its longevity is a huge amount of reinvention and bad. innovation. Sephiroth, what do you want? The last thoughts of Geostigma's dead. Save the discussion for later. We must reach the king before they act. Your first real battle. Let's see some style. Show us what your training has taught you, Yuna. Okay. Each iteration of Final Fantasy has given its fans a different kind of world, and the latest in the series promises to continue in that tradition. Final Fantasy 16 is out today on PlayStation 5, and NPR's James Mastro Marino joins us now. Hey there. Hi, Juana. I mean, James, this franchise is decades old, and there are so many different games and storylines. But tell us, what do you think are the signature elements of a Final Fantasy game? Well, it started with turn-based combat, and now they've become increasingly action-focused. But the main thing you're getting are these epic stories with relatable characters. There's usually a clear good and evil. There's often an environmental message in there. Airships, swords, and giant birds called chocobos that people ride like horses. All right. I mean, you've already gotten to play some of Final Fantasy 16. So tell us, does it deliver? Does it bring us all those elements? Well, yes. And a heaping portion of Game of Thrones, actually. Okay. The series producer forced the core development team to watch the show. So it's a curious marriage. It largely works. And occasionally it's kind of awkward. 
Okay, we were talking earlier about the fact that one of the things that Final Fantasy as a franchise is known for is the spirit of innovation. What's innovative about this installment? Well, they've completely abandoned the turn-based combat that was their mainstay. This time, it's like a Devil May Cry sort of game. It's a, it's a high-speed, high-octane action game. And during especially climactic moments, you transform into a giant fire demon and fight things that are impossibly huge, like the size of whole cities. So it's got some of the most amazing action set pieces I've ever seen. But for longtime series fans, it's quite a departure. Okay, James, I say this in a very endearing way, but you and I are kind of gaming nerds. We love this stuff. But for a person who maybe has never played a Final Fantasy game before, isn't familiar with this world, what's the biggest reason in your mind that they should try out this title? Well, I think the combat is spectacular. It's glorious to watch. It's extremely fun to play. It's streamlined, fluid, and actually very accessible. And it actually is very well acted. The cast that they got for this is extraordinary. It's often extremely well animated. And even if you're not sold on every element in the story, it is undeniably entertaining. And I mean, as we've been talking about, this is a franchise that has been around for decades since the late 1980s. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the impact that Final Fantasy has had on the industry at large. Even back then, in the 80s and early 90s, when it was just pixels, they conveyed enormous character development and these complicated, really wrenching and emotional stories to an adoring fan base. And then that got amplified in 1997's Final Fantasy VII, which was a huge breakout hit for the publisher and, again, set the path for modern gaming, for how characters can even look and move in a 3D space. So fast forward all the way to now, its absence has really been felt because we haven't had a mainline game in the series since 2016. Mm. And even though it's a very different Final Fantasy, it's still setting a standard with its polish and its execution. NPR's James Mastro Marino. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Juana. And for more, check out Andy Bickerton's review of Final Fantasy 16 on NPR.org. Astronauts must be in excellent health. They quarantine before blasting off. They live and work in a sterile environment. And yet, once in outer space, some have viral flare-ups or break out in rashes. A new study helps us understand why. Here's science reporter Ari Daniel. Molecular biologist Odette Loneville wasn't expecting Jeremy Hansen, the Canadian astronaut, to accept her invitation to come over for dinner, but he did. I was not ready. Uh, I just put a salad together and I had some meat pie left from Christmas, so we just pulled some out and pretend I'm a good cook. Nevertheless, dinner was a hit, and so were the conversations Lonneville had with Hansen that week at her lab at the University of Ottawa, where they discussed why some astronauts may be more vulnerable to infections in space. We are the host of multiple viruses and bacteria, and because we're healthy, we manage to keep those at check. But if we're stressed or if there's a dysregulation of the immune system, then the virus will start being active, and likewise for bacteria which can lead to infection. And Lonneville thought maybe something in space was triggering a change in the gene activity of the immune cells in astronaut blood that was allowing these opportunistic infections to surface. So she and her colleagues enlisted 14 American and Canadian astronauts, all headed to the International Space Station for several months at different times. 
Lanaville had their blood sampled before and after their missions here on Earth, but also during their time in outer space. They have to be very careful to secure everything. We don't want any leak, not a drop of blood. Otherwise, it will float in the air and contaminate everybody. The astronauts spun the blood down and stored it in a super cold freezer until they returned to Earth. I was supposed to hire someone to process those, but then I said, no, they're too precious. This blood comes from space. It was my baby and I had to take care of it. Here's what that special blood revealed. Exactly 100 immune-related genes get dialed down in outer space, maybe due to stress, but maybe, Lanaville thinks. Those genes respond to a decrease in gravitational force. That's right, genes that react to a change in gravity. Lanaville says that when an astronaut enters microgravity, their blood shifts from their legs to their torsos and heads. It's uncomfortable, so their body reduces the fluid by up to 15%. But that now means that there are too many immune cells crammed into this smaller amount of blood. Lanaville thinks the drop in gene activity helps eliminate those extra cells. On top of that, they will affect the immune response, mounting a line of defense against pathogen. It's as if the body is telling them, put your guards down which would allow viral and bacterial infections, normally held at bay, to rise up, infecting the astronauts. But once they step foot on land again, the whole thing reverses. The genes get dialed back up and plasma levels return to normal. This work is published in the journal Frontiers in Immunology. It's a good start. Especially as we send astronauts farther and farther out, says Jeremy Teo, a biomedical engineer at NYU Abu Dhabi who wasn't involved in the study. To the moon, to Mars. As we go further, the feasibility of extraditing compromised astronauts back to Earth is just not there anymore. Hence, we need to develop new countermeasures. Down the road, Tio says the study may also have something to say about those with compromised immune systems right here on Earth. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson, a junior stargazers convention is disrupted by an alien encounter. Now playing in New York and Los Angeles in theaters everywhere this Friday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. BU.edu slash SSW. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rescue crews in the Atlantic discovered key pieces of debris near the Titanic that may reveal why the submersible expedition vessel, the Titan, disappeared. 
The debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. It's Thursday, June 22nd. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's no sign of the five men who had been on board. Also coming up, the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade motivated Democratic voters in last year's midterms. They stood in line for hours. They were not going to let Republicans take away a fundamental right that their mothers had. How abortion could also play a major role in next year's race for president. And we remember the first person to be officially diagnosed with autism. He has died at the age of 89. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Coast Guard has now confirmed all five people have died on the submersible Titan that went missing on its way to the Titanic wreckage four days ago. NPR's Toby Smith has more. All indications are that the vessel suffered a catastrophic implosion on its way down to the Titanic site, instantly killing all aboard. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger offered his heartfelt condolences to the families and loved ones. I know that there's a lot of questions about why, how, when uh, this happened, and those questions uh, about regulations that apply, uh, that's going to be, I'm sure, a uh, focus of future uh, review. OceanGate, the company that owns the vessel that they call Experimental, noted in a statement that the passengers, including the company's CEO, were true explorers and that they're grieving deeply for their loss. Tovia Smith, NPR News. President Biden and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi met in Washington today, rolling out a number of agreements aimed at strengthening economic and diplomatic ties, calling the relationship between the two countries never stronger. At a press briefing, Biden focused on the economic deals reached between the two countries. Our economic relationship is booming. Trade between our countries has almost doubled over the past decade to more than $191 billion, supporting tens of thousands of good jobs in both India and the United States. However, human rights activists and some lawmakers have questioned the administration's decision to honor the Indian leader. At a time, there have been some erosion of religious, political, and press freedoms in India. Modi, when questioned by a reporter, bristled at that, saying there is no space for discrimination in his country. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Justice Department is accelerating efforts to fight gun violence. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports department officials have been meeting with local police this week. The Attorney General says prosecutions of illegal firearms dealers are on the rise, and the Justice Department has filed charges against more than 100 people using new gun trafficking laws. Merrick Garland made the remarks to law enforcement officers at the headquarters of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives in Washington. Our work together in the fight against gun violence has never been more urgent than it is now. He says federal agents and prosecutors are working to target criminals responsible for the most gun violence. More than 130 Americans die each day from such violence. It's now the leading cause of death for children in the U.S. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The number of people filing first-time jobless claims remained elevated last week. The Labor Department says for the week ending June 30th, initial applications totaled 264,000. On Wall Street, a mix closed. The Dow was down four points. The Nasdaq rose 128 points. You're listening to NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. We have more now on the efforts to recover the Titan submersible and the remains of the five men who died in a catastrophic implosion aboard the vessel. Paul Hankins with the Navy's Salvage Operations Unit says rescue crews discovered five major pieces of debris that confirmed the loss. The initial thing we found was a nose cone, which was outside of the pressure hull. We then found a large debris field. Within that large debris field, we found the front end bell of the pressure hull. That was the first indication that there was a catastrophic event. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger says it is unclear if any bodies can be recovered from the area. This is a incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor, uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. The Coast Guard says the noises picked up by sonar earlier in the search were not connected with the implosion. The entire B branch of the MBTA's Green Line will be shut down for nearly two weeks in the second half of July. Buses will replace trains between Kenmore and Boston College stops. The T says the shutdown will let workers replace the track at Packard's Corner and between Harvard Avenue and Alston Street. The work begins July 17th. And the MBTA says it's retrained 2,000 workers to address safety concerns after recent near collisions between workers and trains. The training was requested by federal regulators. WBR's Ninjor and Rumeka reports the MBTA's general manager today told the agency's board about the training that was completed in just over a month. MBTA workers and contractors were included in the training, according to the T. General Manager Phil Eng says it focused on key areas that led to the recent near misses, such as right-of-way protocols. And to do this, we implemented an aggressive, around-the-clock, five-day-a-week, four-hour retraining program approved by FTA, half in the classroom and half on the tracks. Eng says the MBTA will continue to retrain all employees and the agency is also working to develop more training programs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Clouds should slowly gather tonight. The off chance of showers lows about 60 degrees. Should climb to the upper 70s tomorrow. Sunshine should be pretty scarce. Clouds and showers for the most part. And then over the weekend, Saturday, pretty gray, creeping to about 80. Maybe some sunshine on Sunday. Temperatures in the low 80s. 67 degrees in Boston now at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, Celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It has been nearly a year since the Supreme Court handed down a major abortion ruling. And in a moment, we will look at how that ruling is shaping politics now and going forward in the 2024 elections. But we begin today at the White House, where President Biden welcomed India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi to Washington with great fanfare. An estimated crowd of 7,000 people gathered on the South Lawn to join in that welcome. The sheer size of that crowd is proof of the partnership between India and the United States. But this partnership comes with questions about Biden's foreign policy vision. NPR White House correspondent Asma Hala joins us now. Hey there. Hi there. Good to be with you. So Asma, what is this visit about? Well, fundamentally, it's about China. This White House is deeply concerned about China's aggression and influence in the Indo-Pacific. And uh, India is also very nervous about its neighbor. Akriti Vasudeva Kalyanakar is with the Stimson Center. That's a think tank that focuses on security issues. 
The China factor is really an accelerant in the relationship. It has really, you know, moved forward cooperation in many ways, particularly in the defense and security side. But I don't think the U.S.-India relationship is just about China. And that's what both leaders today suggested. They spoke about collaborating on a long list, including semiconductors and space. But experts say India's geography is a big part of this friendship, because if India did not border China, would the U.S. really be willing to overlook some of these differences? And Asma, what are those differences? Uh, Well, one is Russia. India has not been willing to outright condemn Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, and it continues to buy a lot of oil from Russia, which has helped financially fuel the war. Biden said today they did talk about ways to mitigate the humanitarian tragedy of the war, and Modi reiterated that his country has put an emphasis on finding a resolution to the conflict, but there were no indications that he's changing any of his positions. Uh, Another big issue is human rights. Biden, you know, campaigned on a pledge to center human rights in his foreign policy. Modi's government has been widely criticized for stifling dissent, for discriminating against religious minorities, and for cracking down on a free press. And today, did Biden press Modi on human rights? Well, Biden said he had a good discussion with Modi about democratic values, and he suggested that these values are what ought to tie India and the U.S. together. I look forward to discussing how we can strengthen our partnership and build a future together worthy of both our peoples. One grounded on democracy, human rights, freedom, and the rule of law. And, and you know, Juana, I will say there was a press conference today, and I think that in itself is noteworthy because Modi doesn't really do press conferences in India. Uh, He was asked today by an American journalist what steps he's willing to take to improve the rights of minorities and uphold free speech. And he denied that, frankly, there is a problem. Uh, Here he is speaking through an interpreter. We have always proved that democracy can deliver. And when I say deliver, this is regardless of caste, creed, religion, gender. There's absolutely no space for discrimination. Okay, and Asma, before we wrap, I want to go back to China for a second. Is the U.S. willing to look past some of these issues because it's playing a long game with India? Well, some experts would say yes. Uh, India is the most populous country in the world, and Biden himself has described the relationship as being the defining partnership of this century. He also said today that fundamentally both India and the U.S. have democracy in their DNA, and it's a really different relationship that the U.S. has with India than with China, a country whose leader Biden described this week as being a dictator. NPR's Asma Khalid, thank you. My pleasure. The Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization has meant that access to abortion care is no longer guaranteed for millions of Americans. It was a political earthquake when it happened nearly a year ago. In many ways, the ground is still shaking. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith looks at what it may mean for the 2024 presidential race. For decades, the politics around abortion were pretty well set. Roe versus Wade meant abortion was legal nationwide. Republicans wanted Roe overturned, and that motivated their voters. Democrats, on the other hand, simply weren't as energized by it, and Democratic politicians often shied away from talking about abortion. Then came the Dobbs decision. Gretchen Whitmer is the Democratic governor of Michigan. The threat of women losing a right we've come to expect and rely on and um, after 50 years of having it, mobilized people, it enraged people, it coalesced people. Whitmer was running for re-election in 2022. She won her race easily. A referendum also on the Michigan ballot, establishing a state constitutional right to abortion and contraception, won by even more. But I can tell you in this 
very swing state, purple state of Michigan, it has been something that has um, really changed the whole in landscape here, flipping both chambers of our legislature for the first time in 40 years and returning me to office and, and a host of other people who are fighting for these rights. Senator Gary Peters, also from Michigan, led nationwide efforts to get Democrats elected and reelected to the U.S. Senate in 2022. He says the Dobbs effect was clear. The polls closed at 8 o'clock uh, that night. If you were in line, you could still vote. And the last voter to vote at the University of Michigan was a little after two o'clock in the morning. They stood in line for hours. They were not going to let Republicans take away a fundamental right that their mothers had. Ultimately, Democrats did better than expected in the midterm elections. Their voters and independents showed up because abortion was on the ballot, quite literally in states like Michigan, but figuratively all over the country. Democratic candidates talked about abortion rights and painted Republicans as extreme. In an interview with Fox News Sunday, Republican Party Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel says her party needs to do things differently in 2024. And abortion was a big issue in key states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. And so the guidance we're going to give to our candidates is you have to address this head on. The Democrats spent $360 million on this, and many of our candidates across the board refused to talk about it, thinking, oh, we can just about the economy and ignore this big issue, and, and they can't. A year out from the Dobbs decision, reproductive rights remain an active political issue. Democratic pollster Celinda Lake says public support for abortion increased right after the decision and has been enduring. The Democratic incumbent in the race for mayor in Lincoln, Nebraska, who Lake consulted for, even made it a central issue in her campaign last month. This issue became a core values issue. It's like, I'm not going to vote for someone who has these views. I don't care what office you're talking about. If you're talking about president to dog catcher, I'm not going to vote for someone with these values. Nationwide, the Dobbs decision remains unpopular. An NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out this week found 57% of those surveyed were opposed, led by Democrats, independents, and women. But Republican pollster Patrick Ruffini says he's just not convinced that come November 2024, this will be the biggest driver of voter enthusiasm. As this becomes more of a settled issue, you know, nearly universal access in blue states, and you're going to have a lot of restrictions in red states, as we settle back into, you know, what feels like a status quo, you know, it's going to be, I think, tougher to move people into message on the issue. Democrats are betting they can keep this issue front of mind. And it is certainly going to be a matter of debate in the competitive Republican presidential primary. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Washington. And now we're going to remember the life of a man who has been called autism's first child. In 1943, Donald Triplett was the first ever person to be formally diagnosed with autism. He died last week at the age of 89. Triplett's diagnosis was the beginning of decades of research into the condition, but his story was largely forgotten until journalists Karen Zucker and John Donvan were researching the history of autism. The two found him living in his hometown, Forest, Mississippi. You know, right away we saw that there was a, a different thing happening there because when we asked permission to be introduced to him, 
um, they warned us not to mess with him in any way. But, you know, we asked people to trust us and they, they said, okay, we'll trust you. And so they began talking to us about Donald. Zucker and Donvan documented Triplett's life in a book and documentary titled In a Different Key. And what they found was the story of an extraordinary man. O.B. Triplett says his uncle was a joy to be around. Don was different. And, you know, I think we have a connotation of different as being, you know, negative or bad or whatever. Which is, which is really not true. It's not true. Donald Triplett was beloved by his community, and he loved them back in his own special way, like the rhyming nicknames he gave to people. Hey, Shelby Welby. Hey, Nat the Cat. Hey, R.C. Hey, hey Tricky Nick. Hey, Jan with a plan. Hey, Don, darling. He didn't just give nicknames. Triplett also had an affinity for numbers, and he liked to assign them to people, as some of his neighbors recalled. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he gave me a number. 154 he was so lucky. And, you know, this is not what happened in the 30s and 40s to people who were different. They were shunned or they were put away for life, never to be seen again. And Donald lived the richest of rich lives. In his final days, Zucker and Donvin paid Donald Triplett a visit and reminded him how much of an impact he had during his life. Karen and I said to him, you know, Donald, we just want you to know how much your story has impacted people out in the world and how much hope you've given them. And Donald, a man of few words, just said, oh, yes, thank you very much. But about 30 seconds later, zing, Karen gets hit in the face with a rubber band. So we kind of think, in a way, that was his, his way of saying, it's, I'm, I'm happy to have helped. Donald Triplett was the first person to be diagnosed with autism. He died last week after a long fight with cancer. He was 89 years old. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace, in a new lawsuit, the Federal Trade Commission has accused Amazon of deliberately making it tough for Prime members to unsubscribe. Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. The Dow today closed right where it began. S&P and Nasdaq rose to snap a three-day losing streak. The S&P gained nearly four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq picked up nearly a full percent. The Food and Drug Administration today has given accelerated approval to the first-of-its-kind gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. The therapy was developed by Cambridge-based biotech Sarepta Therapeutics. Duchenne is the most common form of muscular dystrophy. 
That progressively destroys muscle and primarily affects young boys. The FDA is restricting access to the medication pending more studies. Union workers at Encore have set a strike deadline for the end of this month. 1,400 housekeepers, cooks, and other staff are demanding increased wages and benefits similar to those of other unionized hotel employees in the area. Carlos Adamayo is the president of Boston's largest hospitality union, Unite Here Local 26. We've sat at the bargaining table. We're willing to keep sitting at the bargaining table. But I think the vote speaks for itself that our members and the members of Teamsters Local 25 are prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice and walk out on strike if we're not able to get the contract everyone deserves. The American Gaming Association reports Encore is the third highest grossing commercial casino outside Nevada. Encore says it's working to provide employees with competitive wages and benefits. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. And Brookline Booksmith, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, and Joel Christian Gill discuss Stamped from the Beginning, a graphic history on June 26th, brooklinebooksmith.com. Got to hand it to the Minnesota Twins. They beat the Red Sox 6-0 today thanks to the Twins pitcher Joe Ryan, who notched the Twins' first complete nine-inning game and first shutout since 2018. The Sox move on to Chicago next. This is WBUR. It looks as if the Boston Celtics are parting ways with guard Marcus Smart ahead of tonight's NBA draft. According to multiple reports, the 29-year-old will be sent to the Memphis Grizzlies. It's part of a three-team trade that will ultimately land the Celts' 7-foot, 3-inch center Kristaps Porzingis from the Washington Wizards. Gary Washburn covers the NBA for the Boston Globe. He says Porzingis is a versatile scorer who will make the Celtics better. He's a good mid-range shooter, good three-point shooter, able to dribble. He has a lot of skills. He's kind of a seven-foot-three point guard. You know, he's, he just does a lot of good things. Porzingis also has a long history of injuries. Marcus Smart is the longest-tenured Celtics player. This is WBUR. It's 622. WBUR supporters include Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. From the Supreme Court today, a big decision on tribal water rights along the Colorado River. The court ruled against the Navajo Nation in a case that centered on the tribe's desire to secure more water for its people. Many tribal members live without clean water access at home. Reporter Luke Runyon with member station KUNC is here to explain. Hey, Luke. Hi there. Lay out for me what exactly this case was about. This case was really about the relationship between the federal government and the Navajo Nation and about an 1868 treaty which established the tribe's reservation. It's an incredibly arid expanse of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. The Supreme Court ruled more than a century ago that when reservations were established, they included enough water for people to actually live on them. And in this case, the Navajo were asking the federal government for an assessment of specifically how much water that is. Uh, The government's lawyers countered that the treaty didn't require that. And it sounds like the justices agreed with that with that argument. 
Yeah, a five to four majority agreed with the government's argument. Uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote the opinion, and he was joined by most of the court's conservative wing. And he said the treaty didn't make any promises about assisting the tribe in any way. Uh, But in his dissent, Justice Neil Gorsuch said the other justices were missing the point and misunderstanding the tribe's desires, that their asks were a lot more modest than the court was making them out to be. Well, and I will say, asking the federal government to assess how much water the Navajo Nation needs, that doesn't sound like a huge or a controversial ask. On its surface, it's not. uh, But what some say the Navajo were really asking for in that assessment is more specificity on how much water they actually have a right to. Uh, The treaty just gives the Navajo a vague right to enough water to conduct agriculture and for other uses. But how much is how much is enough has never really been specified. And an assessment could give that specificity. And why is that important? Well, a right to a specific quantified amount of water would likely mean it would come from the nearby Colorado River. That river is already overpromised. There's not enough water to meet demand. And so if the Navajo were to get a legal right to a precise amount, it would probably have to come from someone else. Okay. So for people who watch this closely, what are you hearing? Well, going into this decision, there was some optimism that they'd side with the Navajo Nation because just last week, the court decided to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was a big win for tribes. Uh, But the court in this case went with the more narrow interpretation of what the tribal federal relationship looks like when it comes to water. I talked with Heather Tanana, a University of Utah law professor and citizen of the Navajo Nation, and she says this decision keeps the burden on tribes to chart their own futures without much help the status quo is going to continue. Being disappointed by the federal government is nothing new in Indian country. And does this ruling have implications for other tribes beyond the Colorado, beyond the Colorado River Basin? It's hard to say. Right now, the states that share the river are negotiating how to do that into our climate-changed future. And they've been talking a lot about how tribes must be included in those negotiations. They've been almost completely left out up until now. And today's ruling, as Heather Tanana said, basically maintains the status quo. There's no new legal lever for tribes to ask for assistance in getting access to Colorado River water. Luke Runyon is host of the podcast Thirst Gap about the Colorado River. He is at member station KUNC in Colorado. Thanks, Luke. Thank you. The National Transportation Safety Board is holding two days of hearings in East Palestine, Ohio, to surface critical information about how a freight train derailed in February. That led to fires and a chemical plume that could be seen for miles. Cleanup continues, and some residents are still displaced. Among those testifying are employees of Norfolk Southern, the company which operated the derailed train, along with local emergency responders, unions, and transportation experts. The Allegheny Front Julie Grant has been covering the hearing and joins us now. Hi, Julie. Hi there. So, Julie, tell us, what is the focus then of today's hearing? Well, the first day of hearings is focusing on emergency response efforts, including the way that responders communicated about what was going on right after it happened, and a decision to vent and burn five cars filled with the chemical vinyl chloride. That's what led to the plume that left many residents worried for the environment and their health. There were questions about why first responders didn't have quick and easy information about the contents of the derailed train cars, which they needed to react properly. 
NTSB Chair Jennifer Hamidi asked Norfolk Southern's Scott Deutsch why it took so long for the East Palestine Fire Department to get that information. How is it that Norfolk Southern could provide the contractors responsible for cleanup with the information within 12 minutes of the derailment and took an hour to several hours before providing it to emergency responders? So Deutsch said he could not explain the time frame, but getting this information to first responders matters. If they'd known what chemicals were burning in those train cars, they would have known not to stand nearby trying to douse it. Emergency responders also brought up that they needed more training and funding if they're going to be prepared to respond to events like this. Okay, and this morning, before the hearing, NTSB released thousands of pages of documents. From what you've had a chance to read through so far, what stood out to you? Well, the documents included the transcript of an interview with East Palestine Fire Chief Keith Drabick. He's the only professional staff member at the otherwise volunteer local fire department, and he was put in charge of giving the go-ahead to vent and burn vinyl chloride when the temperature started rising in one of the tank cars. There were concerns about an unplanned explosion if that didn't happen. He said he was told by one of the members of Norfolk Southern's emergency response team that he had just 13 minutes to decide. Drabik says he got blindsided and felt overwhelmed, but that he ultimately approved it. He also says he didn't have training from Norfolk Southern in hazardous material emergency response. And so this raises questions about the system that's in place for making decisions in cases like this. Okay, so we've got day one of the hearing and there are two days. What do we expect tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow they'll be looking at what actually caused the train to derail. So that means wheel bearings, why they fail, how often that happens and how to prevent it. And also industry standards for detector systems along the railways. NTSB will also take a closer look at tank car standards and when it's appropriate to vent and burn chemicals from them. So Julie, ultimately, what is expected to come out of these hearings? Yeah, well, NTSB is purely investigative, and what they do is make safety recommendations. So they're doing this assessment to figure out what sorts of new recommendations they might have to make. That could include things like training for first responders, emergency communication protocols, or new kinds of labeling for tank cars carrying hazardous materials. But ultimately, it will be up to the Department of Transportation to create new rules or Congress to mandate these recommendations. Julie Grant of the Allegheny Front, thanks so much. You're welcome. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. And Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Immerse yourself in the creations of eight international artists working with living plants. Then visit Isabella's blooming courtyard, gardnermuseum.org.